0: Hello listeners, Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada.
0: In considering all the great ways technology has changed our lives, how we are able to communicate, And connect with each other seems to me to be the most valuable. With a few swipes of my finger, I can take a photograph and post it to a social media profile, making it instantly viewable by friends and family all around the world. And as amazing as that is, it's only the tip of the iceberg. I can shop, I can play video games with friends, and if so inclined, I can argue with a complete stranger until I'm blue in the face all without much more than a downward glance and a wiggle of my thumb. But it hasn't all been sunshine and Costco samples. This access to information and access to each other comes at a significant cost, a big portion of which we paid with the intangible currency known simply as cultural change. Change from how we did things to how we do things now that we have more efficient ways to do them. For an example, I think of the mom-and-pop VHS rental stores that were only recently fixtures all across our country. However, today, nearly every one of them has been replaced by a climate-controlled warehouse of supercomputers somewhere. Now, to be clear, I'm not a modern-day Luddite or anything. I just want to highlight a few things that will surface in tonight's story. In tonight's episode, we'll hear the story of one of Halifax's, if not Canada's, most shocking murders and more memorable trials. As the story unfolds, you'll hear how this case involves an unlikely murderer's use of technology to lure a victim to his death, as well as to cover up the murder. And then how that same technology betrayed the killer, leading investigators straight to him. But even with all that, That's not the reason I chose to spend this introduction reflecting on the societal changes brought on by recent technological advances. It's more so as a way to introduce my guest. As a lifelong news watcher type, I've noticed a big shift in how stories such as the one we'll hear are being told by the major media. Thanks to social media platforms and the 24-hour, 365-day news cycle they stimulate, News coverage is often focused on providing updates to stories, piece by piece, rather than compiling information and telling a complete story. Because of this constant breaking news style reporting, it's hard to take a step back and see the forest for the trees, so to speak. When tonight's story and the resulting trial unraveled itself in the news, I watched along transfixed. This story quickly gained a tremendous level of public interest such that it occupied the evening news for months. Almost daily, a new update would appear and be worthy of printing. But with the amount of twists and turns in the story, the fragments of information being shared were startling, but the full context wasn't always obvious. For me, despite following the case closely and in real time, the true gravity of the story didn't hit me until even after the case's sensational trial. And it was thanks to a local journalist Kayla Hounsel. Kayla was one of the leading voices telling this story, going so far as to provide up-to-the-minute tweets from within the courtroom during trial. But even after a verdict was read and the courtroom cleared, Kayla wasn't ready to move on to the next assignment. She continued to dig deeper and deeper still, and ultimately got down to some good old-fashioned storytelling. The end result of her work? was one of the most heartbreaking, yet captivating books I recall ever reading. In tonight's episode, the first in a two-part series, I'm proud to be joined by Kayla Hounsell. Our topic, spread out amongst these episodes, is the senseless murder of Taylor Sampson and the sensational trial of William Sanderson. The mood
1: will likely be somber as Dalhousie students get ready to go back to school, Police say student Taylor Sampson was murdered in this Henry Street building, one block from campus. Another student is charged with first-degree murder in connection to his death. Court documents obtained by Global News show police believe Sampson was murdered over a drug deal. This student says the incident is scary. You think that something like that won't happen right where you live, right where you go to school, and it does. She says the mood on campus has shifted since news of the murder. A lot of people either knew him or were in similar friend circles. This is a bunch of people that might have been involved. And it's just going to be a, probably a bit more difficult start. Other students say the Dow connection is concerning.
0: For new students walking in, it's kind of scary. They walk in and right away, you know, there was a murder here not too long ago. It's a hell of a way to start your university degree. Anyone who lived in Nova Scotia between the summer of 2015, when Taylor was murdered, and present day are likely well aware of the main details of this case. It'd be hard not to be, as this heartbreaking story was among the largest news stories of the decade here in Nova Scotia. But for many of us, the full story wasn't made available for public consumption until recently. It came in the form of the now best-selling book, First Degree, From Med School to Murder. When I planned to cover this story on Nighttime, my first step was to read the book and invite the author, Kayla Hounsel, to join me. Fortunately, I caught Kayla between other commitments, and she was available for an interview. During this episode, tonight, you'll hear excerpts from that interview. But before we get too far into that, let's introduce you to our guest,
1: I'm Kayla Hounsell. I'm a journalist and I'm the author of First Degree, From Med School to Murder, the story behind the shocking Will Sanderson trial. I'm also the CBC's national reporter for the Maritime, so I cover the three maritime provinces for CBC National News on radio, on television and online, which means that I'm most often found on programs like The World at Six and The
0: National. As you just heard Kayla describe, she's not your run-of-the-mill hack like me. She's the real deal and I know that a a journalist with the level of success Kayla has enjoyed isn't out there pitching book ideas, looking for a paycheck. I knew it was something special that led to her writing of the now best-selling book First Degree. I started our conversation on that point.
1: I had been reporting on the case for almost three years at the time. It was not my idea to write this book, which most people are usually pretty surprised by. So picture, if you will, I am live tweeting the William Sanderson trial in my role as a reporter. I was at CTV at the time. It was midway through the trial, and I was live tweeting, so very focused on pumping out as much information as possible that was coming into the courtroom. And I get an email flash across the top of my screen from Elaine McCluskey, who was the nonfiction editor at Nimbus Publishing. And she wanted to know if I had ever written anything long form. No. Or if I might consider writing something long form. Maybe. Honestly, I didn't know Elaine. I didn't know anyone at Nimbus. I wasn't really convinced that this was a serious offer. I didn't know if this was even possible. Plus, I was on deadline. (laughs) So I raced back to the television station, put together my story for the six o'clock news, and then started looking into it. And it didn't take me long to realize that uh, this was the real deal. And Elaine would go on to become my editor, fantastic editor. I'm so lucky to have worked with her. Um, So that's how it came to be. It wasn't my idea. But I knew immediately that it was a good idea. I was so invested in the case, and I wanted to
0: write this book. Kayla had mentioned that she'd been reporting on the murder of Taylor Sampson for several years before the idea of a book even popped up. This case has been a big story since the beginning, one of Nova Scotia's highest profile cases, in fact. And Kayla's been a leading voice telling the story since the news of a missing, then-murdered university student broke. I'd asked Kayla to tell me, from her view, why this case had captured the public's attention to the extent that it had.
1: I think it's because of who it involves. So we have an accused, now a convicted young man, who was just days away from starting medical school. He wanted to be a doctor, so he went from pledging to save lives to taking a life— His victim was also a very promising uh, young person. It was a university student. And not just the killer and the victim, but all of their friends. We saw this lineup of young, attractive, intelligent university students being dragged through the Canadian justice system. And I've spent a lot of time covering court. These are not the people that we see in court. So I thought that was um, very rare. It didn't make sense to me, and I wanted to try to make sense of it.
0: Now that I've spent such considerable time introducing the story, our guest, and Kayla's history with this case, it's time to begin the story. Our narrative will begin with an introduction to the victim of this senseless and cruel crime, Taylor Sampson.
1: Taylor Sampson was 22 years old. He was a physics student at Dalhousie University. He was a member of a frat, uh, the Gamma Rho chapter of Sigma Chi at Dalhousie University, which is one of the largest collegiate fraternities, and its alumni include people like Brad Pitt and Tom Selleck, the late Jack Layton, leader of Canada's New Democratic Party. Uh, And he grew up in Amherst, Nova Scotia, with his younger brother, Connor, who lives with autism, and his mother, Linda, who, you know, struggled to make ends meet. His parents split when he was very young, He didn't have a great relationship with his father while he was growing up, although that was changing at the time of his death. And basically everyone that I interviewed about Taylor described him as a protector. He wanted to take care of everyone in his life, but certainly his younger brother Connor and his mom Linda.
0: Kayla had made several references to Taylor growing up amidst financial hardships. Perhaps inspired by a need to care for his loved ones or simply the result of years of making the most of what little money he had, Taylor became a highly motivated entrepreneur who was juggling several business ventures at the time of his death.
1: Yeah, all of his friends describe him as having an entrepreneurial spirit. So many might assume that what we mean by that is that he was a drug dealer. Everyone knew that he was selling drugs, but his friends say that it was more than that, and that he was really constantly looking for ways to make money, legitimate ways to make money. So, for example, he joined Vima, a multi-level marketing business. He had a YouTube tutoring business. He started a smoothie business and was even looking at getting into real estate. And again, he did all of this, his friends say, because he wanted to take care of the people around him.
0: To get a sense of Taylor's focus and drive, Kayla shared an interesting anecdote that really illustrates the point. After the crime we'll soon hear describe occurred, police would search his apartment and find a note he had scribbled down in which he outlined his personal goals.
1: Right, so this is a piece of graph paper that was found in Taylor Sampson's bedroom after he disappeared. Uh, it's sort of goals that he scrawled on this piece of graph paper, and he called it "My Plan." So, number one, first, one hundred thousand dollars plus investment by the time I am twenty-five. Number two, I will give back everything I can to those who deserve it and more. Number three, by the time I am twenty-five. Number four, I will accumulate enough wealth early on so that I will never have to worry about money ever again. Number five, I will innovate, develop, and make the world a better place as well as influence the lives of many. Number six, before I die. And then he writes in brackets, hope to make it to 30. Ha ha. So, you know, as I write in first degree, this was probably a joke by an invincible 20-something at the time, But of course, it's now hauntingly heartbreaking because we know that he wouldn't make it to 30.
0: In a prior clip, you heard Kayla discuss the varied business ventures Taylor embarked upon in an attempt to meet those ambitious goals. For better or worse, one of them was his business in dealing marijuana. Our guest Kayla had an opportunity to speak with many of those close to Taylor, I had asked her what she learned about the minor role he played in Halifax's underground drug trade. This part of his life is important to discuss in this story, both to dispel the idea that Taylor was some kind of hardened criminal, but also, and more importantly, because Taylor's involvement in the illicit drug trade would play a significant role in the events leading to his death.
1: He was a drug dealer Everyone in his life knew about that, but they all thought that he was selling small amounts, gram amounts, to his friends here and there to make some extra cash while he was at university. No one had any idea what he was up to the night that he disappeared. Um, Furthermore, they are all adamant that he had never done anything like that before, that he had never done anything on that scale before, but of course we now know that he was doing a drug deal that night, a very big one, 20 pounds of weed in exchange for $40,000.
0: After a short break, we'll hear how this uncharacteristically large drug deal led to Taylor being considered a missing person. In a prior clip, we heard Kayla explain that Taylor had disappeared while in the midst of a major drug deal, one that was said to be uncharacteristically large for him. Our narrative will pick up with the activity leading up to the filing of a missing persons report. We'll start at the evening of Saturday, August 15th, 2015, the last night Taylor Sampson was seen alive. To get a sense of Taylor's activity that night, we'll turn to statements his then girlfriend Mackenzie had made during this case's eventual trial. She may not have been aware of it at the time, but in the days prior, Taylor had begun negotiating a major drug deal that would change his life and her life in the most dramatic way possible.
1: So Mackenzie Ruthven was Taylor Sampson's girlfriend at the time that he disappeared. They had been together for about six months. I didn't get to speak with her, unfortunately, but she did testify during the trial. So we know what happened from her perspective through her testimony. So she testified that she and Taylor were at his apartment on South Street, which he was still in the process of moving into that Saturday night on August 15th, 2015. They were getting ready to go downtown with some friends that night, and she described him as distracted or antsy. He told her that he was going just a few houses down and that he would be right back. He left his keys, his wallet, and his medication on the table. He took a large black duffel bag, which she believed to contain a significant amount of marijuana. She didn't know exactly how much, but he never came back.
0: After failing to return back to the apartment after stepping out for what appeared to be a quick drug deal, Mackenzie and the rest of Taylor's friends slowly became increasingly concerned. Thoughts of maybe he got tied up with something unexpectedly, mutated into where the hell is Taylor? When Taylor's family is informed of what's happening in Halifax, the situation quickly escalates to the point of involving local police.
1: It was actually his stepmother that first reported him missing to police. So she says that one of his friends showed up at her place, her and his father's place, and said told them that he was missing. And this was after he didn't show up for a baseball game. His brother, Connor, got a message from his father saying, Taylor's missing. One of his friends just came here and told us he's missing. We don't know where he is. He's not in jail. He's not in any of the hospitals we've called around. So then his mother and his brother packed up. They went to Halifax and literally started searching for him, banging on doors in the area Uh, that Sunday evening. It wasn't until the following morning that his mother learned what he had been up to. His friends told her that he was going to do a significant drug deal the previous evening. They didn't know how much. They, in fact, believed that he was selling four pounds of marijuana, which was still a lot and more than they knew him to be involved with dealing uh, previously. So at that point, his mother went to the police station to say that she had more information.
0: When Taylor's missing persons report was filed, the local police investigation had begun, but at least initially, it appeared to most likely be a misunderstanding of some sort. For many who knew Taylor, the initial search for him almost seemed laughable, but as more information came to light, specifically that major drug deal he was in the midst of, the investigation changed its scope considerably.
1: It was just sort of a run-of-the-mill missing persons case. The police testified that there was nothing that stood out about it. Uh, One of his friends told me that he remembers seeing his picture going around on Facebook and that he was missing and he thought, why is this on Facebook? He's has been missing not even a day. This is not that serious. He wouldn't do anything that would get him into any kind of trouble. I think, though, the friends who knew what he was doing that night were immediately concerned uh, and then, again, when police got that information from his mother that there was to be a significant drug deal the night before, that's what kicked the case up to the major crime unit.
0: As you heard described prior, Taylor was last seen by his girlfriend leaving his apartment with a large hockey-style duffel bag. When he left, he didn't give specifics as to where he was going or who exactly he'd be meeting, which obviously made the jobs of those searching for him a bit more difficult. One of the first investigative techniques they used was to examine Taylor's cell phone activity. As it turns out, those phone records would lead investigators to some unusual places.
1: So, investigators could not find Taylor Sampson's phone, but they were able to determine the last number that had contacted Taylor Sampson. And they traced it to a home for people who live with disabilities in Lower Sackville where William Sanderson worked. So, officers went to the home, they interviewed Sanderson's colleagues, and they were able to determine that it was Sanderson, in fact, who had been trying to contact Taylor Sampson last. So they contacted him. He got back to police. He called them uh, and agreed willingly to go in for questioning. And he did.
0: For the investigators leading the search for Taylor, the initial questions they wanted answered related to the drug deal he was mixed up in. Specifically, who else was involved in the sale? Who was Taylor meeting? Could Taylor still be with them? And perhaps is Taylor being held against his will? Seeing as the last person he spoke with on his phone was now identified, investigators set out to learn all they could about William Sanderson. And the more they learned about him, the less he seemed like anyone who could be involved in a drug deal. William Sanderson, at least on the surface, was exemplary, and only days away from starting classes at Halifax's prestigious medical school.
1: So William Sanderson was 22 at the time that this story began. He's 26 now. At the time, he was just days away from starting medical school at Dalhousie University. He had already completed a year of medical school in the Caribbean. As I say, he worked at a home for people who lived with disabilities, he had traveled to Africa on a medical brigade mission, he was a varsity athlete, he ran track and field for the Dalhousie Tigers, and he comes from a loving, secure, stable home in Truro, Nova Scotia.
0: As investigators prepared for their interview with Sandison, it was expected to be something between a procedural necessity and a waste of time. William seemed very willing and comfortable with the idea of coming to the station. He had a spotless history and just didn't fit the profile of someone involved in a drug rip or any other nefarious misdeeds. But some things he said, and some things investigators were able to prove as untrue, would leave them questioning William's role in Taylor's disappearance.
1: I would say that that first interview was extremely voluntary. William Sanderson was not considered a suspect in any way. In fact, police considered him a witness at that time. Uh, They called him, he agreed to go in, uh, and he did a short time later. He was very willing to chat with them and share information. Again, he was a witness at that time, but he would make some critical mistakes during that interview. And it started with a texting app. He told police that he communicated with Taylor Sampson on a texting app and that he had deleted it after he learned that Taylor had disappeared because he worried that he would get in trouble for selling drugs. Uh, And that was true, that he had deleted that texting app. What he didn't realize is that when he re-downloaded the app, all of those messages would come back in. And they did not match up with the story that he told police. And that would lead them to be suspicious of him.
0: You heard Kayla describe William being caught in a lie. In short, when police asked Sandison about the nature of his relationship with Taylor Sampson, William Sandison had told them he'd been planning to purchase a quantity of drugs from Taylor, however Taylor didn't show up to Sandison's apartment to complete the deal as they had planned. When asked how the deal was negotiated, Sandison explained they communicated through an instant messaging app that provides more privacy than Facebook Messenger or a phone's built-in messaging system. Again, backing up to what Kayla said in the prior clip, William explained to police that he deleted the app and its associated data once he heard Taylor was missing out of fear that he could get in trouble for trying to buy drugs. William, as I mentioned, was very cooperative during this interview. When police asked him to reinstall the app, he agreed, likely not expecting all his prior messages to be sitting there waiting to expose his dishonesty. The messages sent between Sanderson and the missing man Taylor Sampson on the day of his disappearance were quite unusual and certainly suspicious. It starts with the pair agreeing to meet and finalize a drug deal. They communicated back and forth as Sanderson was tied up with some friends. Then Sanderson tells Sampson that they're gone, basically saying the coast is clear, let's do this. Then shortly after Taylor's girlfriend stated he left the apartment, Taylor messaged Sandison, stating, I'm out back of your building now. The next messages in the thread weren't sent until several hours later. It was Sandison writing to the missing Taylor Sampson. He says, This isn't cool, man. You said you'd be right back. I want that stuff. Now, with this new information, Sandison is either simply lying to hide knowledge of Taylor's disappearance, or lying and attempting to cover his tracks. Now at this point, investigators aren't prepared to keep Sanderson in custody any longer, and as such, they let him leave the police station, albeit now under surveillance. In a matter of hours, however, they'll bring him back into the station for a second interview, one with a much different tone than the first. They would go back to Sanderson's apartment that evening with plans to ask him some hard questions, but to their disappointment, their heavy knocks to the door go unanswered. As police stand outside his door listening for sounds of movement within Sanderson's apartment, police take note of several webcam-style surveillance cameras installed in the areas surrounding the apartment door. With the apartment seemingly empty, police are faced with a difficult choice. Ultimately, out of fear that Taylor may be inside and tied up, they request the legal ability to enter, and when they do, William begins to look even worse.
1: So police entered William Sanderson's apartment that night under what they call exigent circumstances. They believed that Taylor Sampson might still be alive and they were trying to save his life. They had also learned that Taylor Sampson had a pre-existing medical condition, an autoimmune liver disease. They knew he didn't have his medication and so they really believed that time was of the essence. Um, they didn't find Taylor Sampson, but they did find a whole lot of other stuff uh, that would go on to be evidence in the case. They found pants that were stained. They found a sword. They found a couple of new hammers with the bags still over them. They would eventually go on to locate the bullets and William Sanderson's gun once they gained access to his safe. And they found one of the bullets in the window frame. Now, the apartment itself, uh, at a first glance, appeared to be clean, um, but there were what police believed were small specks of blood spatter all over the apartment, essentially, uh, and they would go on to confirm that it was indeed deep blood.
0: Given the conflicting information about the text messages and the downright suspicious scene police were investigating back at the apartment, officers were deployed to urgently take Sanderson into custody. When police track him down, it's at the home of his girlfriend's grandmother in Dartmouth. Both William and his girlfriend Sonia are placed in handcuffs and taken back to the police station. Police would then conduct the second interview with Sanderson, who at this point is facing charges of kidnapping, drug trafficking, and misleading police.
1: The second interview is totally different. Sanderson is now a suspect. He's been arrested. So this is taking place in a different room. It's now an interrogation. And this is where we see this really interesting dynamic of the good cop, bad cop. So Corporal at the time, Jody Allison, uh, is the good cop. And he interviews Sanderson at length for hours. He's trying to become friends with him. I would say that he's even mild-mannered in his approach. He's continually telling William Sanderson he thinks he's a good guy. He constantly brings up the fact that he was going to be a doctor. He produces the Hippocratic Oath, which is the oath that doctors take pledging to, you know, take care of people and do them no harm. Uh, And he goes on for hours trying to get William Sanderson to tell him what happened that night. It doesn't work. Then we see Detective Constable Roger Sayer enter the room, and he's the so-called bad cop. He has a very different approach. He's firm. I would say he's almost angry. He's very direct. He's telling William Sanderson, we know that you know what happened here. I've been watching you since the beginning of this. We're collecting all of this evidence. You need to tell us what happened that night. Something works. And Sanderson starts to talk, not to Roger Sayer, but to Jodie Allison, the good cop.
0: Now, before we get to what William says, let's remember, so far, he has already given one version of what happened that night. He waited. Taylor didn't show up. Then, when police had him reinstall the messaging app, that version of the story appeared much less honest. Now with police in his apartment, finding blood, bullet holes, and all sorts of fuel for their suspicion, he's about to give his second and third version of the truth.
1: So he tells different versions of what happened. Remember that when he was a witness, he told police that he didn't even see Taylor Sampson that night. Now in the second interview, this interrogation, he first says that there were three men who came to his apartment while he was there with Taylor Sampson. They came in through the front door. There was a fight. William Sanderson says he was hit on the head. He went down. Uh, There was a lot of blood and that the three guys left with Taylor Sampson and they went out the front door. Uh, He doesn't know whether Taylor Sampson is dead or alive. As he continues talking, his story changes. Now there are only two men. And this time, they come in through his roommate's bedroom window and they're wearing morph suits, which are spandex, head-to-toe suits. Uh, And he says this is why he doesn't know who they are. This time, they shoot Taylor Sampson in the back of the head, he says. They put him in a duffel bag, which William Sanderson says is the biggest bag he's ever seen, along with the weed, Uh, and they take off and he, again, doesn't know whether Taylor Sampson is dead or alive.
0: Now, with William admitting to actually being with Taylor in his apartment, police are all but certain they found their guy. Further to that, given the blood at the scene, they're beginning to suspect Taylor Sampson isn't missing. He's likely dead. In Sanderson, he appears to be heavily involved, if not responsible. As this second interview ends, now only four days since Taylor was last seen leaving his apartment with a large duffel bag, the police lay a charge of first-degree murder against William Sanderson. At this point in Nighttime's coverage of this case, we've been introduced to the two key figures in the story. The missing man, Taylor Sampson, and the man charged with his murder, the squeaky clean William Sanderson. We learned how Taylor's phone records led investigators first to a special needs group home, and then to a staff member, William Sanderson. Then we heard the story of how the reinstall of a deleted messaging app provided investigators with what for Will Sanderson was some very inconvenient information, mainly evidence that he'd been lying to them. And then we heard how a search of his home and a follow-up interview would lead to Will providing two more versions of his story and police laying a charge of first-degree murder. In the coming days, this story will be continued in Part 2 of The Murder of Taylor Sampson. In that episode, we'll again be joined by journalist, author, and all-around nice person Kayla Hounsel, who will help to discuss the evidence against Will Sanderson, the trial, some recent developments in the case, and share some interesting background on her best-selling book, First Degree, From Med School to Murder. Now, before we finish this portion of the series, I have a dedication and some thanks to share. I want to dedicate this episode to the family, friends, and memory of Taylor Sampson, an inspirational person, full of life, and taken way too soon. I want to thank Kayla Hounsel for appearing in this episode and for her amazing work covering this case. The events described in the series only scratch the surface of the story she masterfully lays out in her book First Degree. If anyone's interested in purchasing the book, I've added a link in the episode notes. I'd also like to thank the amazing Toronto-based band Vox Somnia for again providing the music for this episode of Nighttime. The music you're hearing is an instrumental version of one of their great songs. I've linked to it in the show notes as well. And with that, I'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. If you're interested in hearing more from Nighttime, please check out the Patreon group. It's a dollar a month, and it allows you to support the show while accessing the supporter-exclusive feed, which provides ad-free, early releases of episodes, in addition to prior episodes that are no longer available on this free feed. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash podcasts. Now, I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome the newest members to the group. Joe, and the very generous Ellen Haynes, I sincerely appreciate you supporting Nighttime and becoming patrons last month. For anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Equivalent. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities, both on and off the show, follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at nighttimepodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime
1: Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.